You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Collection number one looks like the work of an aggregator who goes by the name of Corpse. Ocean Lotus is working on a new downloader. Cookie Miner Malware is poking around in Max. Huawei continues to receive harsh security scrutiny internationally, even as it seeks to position itself as a 5G leader. Russian influencers begin to attend to Venezuela. And if someone says they've got a video of you looking at things you shouldn't, they probably don't. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, February 4th, 2019. Security firm Recorded Future has been looking into collection number one, as well as collections number two through five, and its researchers believe they have a line on the individual responsible for collection number one. It appears to be a cyber criminal known by the nom de hack corpse, There are other names out there who've hawked collection number one for sale in various dark web markets. The one who calls himself Clorox is a poseur, not the person who pulled the material together. The one who goes by Sanix is a reseller who bought the data dump and is now offering it to others. ZDNet points out that Mr. Corpse, like Clorox and Sanix, is probably at most an aggregator, not a hacker who accomplished the breaches in the first place. The collections have, by all appearances, been pulled from past data exposures, and there's little new there. These data dumps are useful reminders of the importance of good digital hygiene, and they should inspire people not to reuse passwords and to change passwords that may have been exposed. But they're not grounds for panic. Those who continue to reuse passwords that they established several years ago can expect to receive the attentions of criminals conducting credential-stuffing attacks. Suggestions last week that there would be a demand-side push against users of WebStressor after supply-side action against the booter service seem to be borne out. Krebs on Security reports that Europol is preparing to bring legal action against 250 users of the shuttered DDoS for Hire service. U.S. authorities have also noted that hiring a service like WebStressor would typically also constitute a violation of U.S. law. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 reports that the Vietnamese threat group Ocean Lotus, that's APT32, has deployed a new downloader, CareDown. It's typically distributed either through a malicious macro in a Microsoft Office document or by a RAR activity with some DLL side loading. 
security firm Malwarebytes is tracking a new strain of malware. They call it Cookie Miner. It steals browser cookies associated with various online wallet services and cryptocurrency websites. It can also pick up as bleeping computer reports, passwords, texts, and credit card credentials, particularly any stored locally in either Safari or Chrome browsers. Palo Alto's Unit 42 has also been tracking Cookie Miner. The researchers there list some of the cryptocurrency exchanges the malware is interested in. Binance, Coinbase, Holoniacs, Bittrex, Bitstamp, MyEtherWallet, and any website that uses the word blockchain in its domain name. Cookie Miner affects Macs, like the possibly related Darth Miner and Lamepire malware strains identified last December. Cookie Miner uses the Empire backdoor to establish persistence and command and control channels. Huawei receives harsher scrutiny as a potential security risk in both Canada and the UK. In the UK, as the Times of London reports, the discussion is mixed with recriminations over the government's alleged failure to take warnings from various defense experts of Huawei-enabled espionage seriously when it received them six years ago. The Telegraph is also reporting that the soon-to-be-released annual report from the UK's Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Center, that's a working group within GCHQ's National Cybersecurity Center, will be highly critical of the telecom equipment manufacturer's ability or willingness to address the security concerns the center raised last year. Huawei has committed to spending about $2 billion to allay the concerns that earlier report raised, but, says the Telegraph, sources in a position to know say that the reality of their effort has fallen far short of the promises. In Canada, any prospective role Huawei may play in that nation's 5G network remains a matter of public debate, and the company's CFO remains in or around Vancouver, awaiting the outcome of proceedings that would extradite her to face criminal charges in the U.S. It's an open question whether the company's early advantage in 5G technology will enable it to ride out the international backlash over security. On the one hand, Huawei's devices have a reputation for low-cost and solid performance, and the company is an influential player on standard-setting bodies that will have a lot to say about the shape 5G technology will assume. On the other hand, if the Five Eyes' suspicion of the company continues, as they seem likely to do, that participation and influence may not translate into commercial viability, let alone market dominance. If the Russian media mouthpiece RT is any indication, Moscow's information campaign concerning Venezuela would seem to have begun. The outlet warns that U.S. military intervention may be imminent and would be easy for the U.S. to undertake. Interference in Venezuelan internal affairs would grossly violate international law, says Mr. Putin, because countries shouldn't fool around in other countries' internal affairs. Yet somehow one doubts this means President Maduro's bodyguard of green men is likely to be repatriated to spend their Vopper coins in the Arbonne anytime soon. We do hope that Venezuela's suffering is soon alleviated, but be wary of how the conflict is treated in social media over the coming weeks. Finally, there's a new wave of extortion attempts that's been running since the middle of last month. The victims receive an email saying that the emailer, you don't know me, as the extortionists invariably introduce themselves, has caught the recipient using an adult content site, and they have webcam video of such use, and that they'll release that webcam video to friends, family, colleagues, employer, and so on, 
if they're not promptly compensated in Bitcoin. This is a case in which a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. The extortionists say they've got the victim's passwords from a data breach. Well, there have been a lot of those, haven't there? After all, there's collection number one, collection number two, and so on. Who's to say they don't have those passwords? And who knows what they now have access to? Or so thinks the nervous victim. But remember, the guilty flee where no man pursueth. It's a pure scam. They've probably got nothing. If you get one of those emails, delete it and get on with life. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He's the chief security officer at Palo Alto Networks, and he also heads up Unit 42, which is their threat intelligence team. Rick, uh, great to have you back. Um, We recently had some news coming out of Australia, uh, some new legislation there. Can you bring us up to date? What's going on? Yeah, Australia's House of Representatives passed the Telecommunications Assistance and Access Bill for 2018. It's also known as the anti-encryption bill. They did it at the beginning of December. And if the upper house votes in support early in 2019, which it is expected to do, law enforcement with the proper warrant could force companies like Google, Facebook, WhatsApp, Signal, and other tech giants to help them access encrypted communications. And if they don't, these companies could face massive financial penalties. So where do you stand on this? Are you for this or against this? Well, let me just say that I am sympathetic to the law enforcement problem, not just in Australia, but all around the world. You know, Newsweek reported last year that half of all Internet traffic is encrypted, and that stat will likely go up over time. 
And with end-to-end encryption apps like WhatsApp and Signal, criminals and other ne'er-do-wells can block their communication traffic from prying eyes with ease. The Australians and, indeed, all the Western law enforcement agencies claim they need this capability for national security, that it is an essential tool to fight serious offenses such as crime, terrorist attacks, drug trafficking, smuggling, and sexual exploitation of children. I don't disagree. Nobody wants to hamstring our law enforcement organizations by allowing the Internet to go dark on them. Yeah, but obviously uh, this bumps up against privacy concerns. Exactly. I get that question everywhere I go. So here's a couple things that come to mind. Do we want our governments to have this kind of power when the average citizen has no mechanism to check for potential abuse of it other than a note from our leader saying, trust us, we're here to help, right? Do we <laughs> want that? Right? Or do we want our governments to mandate that we give them that power when even the tech giants don't know for sure how anything they might do to accommodate law enforcement might weaken the privacy of even the average citizen. All right, but where's the happy medium here? I mean, how do we choose? Do we prioritize privacy over security? Not at all. Listen, uh, in the U.S., in the preamble to the Constitution, it says to establish justice and secure the blessings of liberty. And most constitutional scholars say that although the Constitution does not say that privacy is a right explicitly, that last bit about blessing of liberty is about our right to privacy. Um, But the Fourth Amendment does say uh, that the people should be secured against unreasonable searches and seizures. Mm -hmm. The point is this. In the U.S., privacy does not trump security. The two ideas are in tension with each other, either by design or by luck. U.S. founding fathers neither gave neither idea dominion over the other. They're supposed to be in balance. Hmm. Yeah, but it strikes me that um, people sort of take sides with this, and, and they have very uh, almost tribal positions when it comes to which side of this they, they, uh, they choose to be on. Yeah, and it's worth noting that we've been here before, right? So back in the early 1990s, uh, the U.S. was having this debate for the first time. Uh, Diffie and Hellman published their famous key exchange paper back in 1975, and the RSA boys, Rivest, Shamir, and Alderman published their famous encryption paper in 1978. This was a giant milestone, by the way. Before Diffie and Hellman and the RSA team, encryption was purely a government function. But by 1986, the RSA company had started selling encryption software to the commercial space, and by 1991, Phil Zimmerman had released his PGP, Pretty Good Privacy Software, to the world for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NSA panicked because they thought they were losing a rich source of intelligence and convinced uh, the Clinton administration to mandate the inclusion of something called the Clipper chip into all computers. Now, right. yeah. yeah, you I remember, remember this debate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, the Clipper chip was going to provide encryption services to the masses, but the catch was that it would also keep the encryption keys for all citizens in escrow in case the government needed to break the encryption for law enforcement and intelligent purposes. Now, this scheme failed for lots of reasons. And if you want to learn about the details, uh, check out Stephen Levy's book called Crypto. He chronicles the entire process, and the Cybersecurity Canon Project inducted his book into the Hall of Fame two years ago. Stephen Levy's one of my favorite authors. I know. He's just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, he actually came out to the ceremony and gave a great speech. Uh, mm. He's fantastic. Uh, but here we are again in 2018 with Western governments seeking a way to break encryption inside of commercial products. The Aussie approach is this anti-encryption bill, and it seeks to place security as more important than privacy. It isn't, but it seeks to pull the conversation to that side. The question for the privacy advocates is this. What would you want in return for giving the government this kind of power? What kind of rules would you want in place 
to make sure the government cannot abuse its power or did not unknowingly weaken the privacy of the general citizen. Now, I got a couple of thoughts here, Dave. Rick, you always have thoughts. <laughs> this, well, it seems to me too that this debate never—we never hear from the other side, right? About what would we want? It's always a, on on each side. It's no or yes. It has to be one. It's complete thing. And how about a little compromise here? So, if I was going to offer a compromise, there'd be two things I'd want to consider, right? First, I'd want complete transparency of the process, right? Regular publication of how many times uh, it was the law was used. For what kind of crimes and how many times that having access actually resulted in the conviction of a criminal or the prevention of a terrorist attack. I'm not looking for uh, a classified information here. I'm just looking for stats and metrics that shows that the program is working. Hmm. This all should be public knowledge. And the second thing is I want this built into the law, a regular reassessment of the program. Let's say we build a law with a regular reassessment by lawmakers, call it every 10 years where they look at the stats with the purpose to determine that neither security or privacy is more powerful than the other, that the system is, as designed does not break the average citizen's privacy, nor does it keep law enforcement in the dark. I think with these two ideas, we can get out from in between this you know, debate on both sides where nobody is budging an inch. Well, I admire your optimism on it. I, I can't say that I, I feel uh, as as hopeful as you do that uh, that we can find that happy place in between. It seems like folks are pretty well dug in, but uh, certainly uh, thought-provoking. And uh, as always, uh, Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. 
Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.